from Red Kite Prayer. This is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick. Each week, we take a look at different facets of how cycling fits in our lives. How goes it, Celine? It is going very well here, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, we are having something that is summer adjacent without all the heat, uh, and so I've been getting out on some great rides, and uh, this afternoon we've got our dirt crits here in town, and uh, I'm I'm hoping that I can be uh, on the podium. Oh, that's exciting! It, and he said it out it's loud. A, right? It's a lower now. category. It's a lower category. Let's let's be clear. Well, if we don't have a bunch of like sixteen year olds who uh, show up, my gosh, those kids are so fast. yeah i get my butt kicked by a bunch of kids uh you know if it's just the old guys i stand a chance (laughs) well good luck good luck to you (laughs) very cool uh what do you say we jump into it sounds good all right so earlier this week i went down to oakland to visit with matt harvey the ceo of enduro bearings um i've had this I'm a total geek. I'm sorry. I've had this really odd question nagging at me, which is why the bike industry persisted in using cup and cone bearings until very recently, while all the rest of the industrialized world moved to precision bearings back, I don't know, the Nixon administration. (laughs) But it's even weirder than that. So back when I was a bike mechanic, we had guidelines of just which balls we used when we did overhauls. Anytime we did an overhaul, we'd pull out the old bearings, the old ball bearings, use the, uh, you know, keep the hubs, keep the bottom bracket, you know, um, keep the cone nuts, but we'd throw the balls out and put fresh ones in. Um, so there were the cheap balls that came in the little $1 plastic bags, and then there were the grade 25 balls that came in the fancy box. Those were the balls that we used with Camp and Yellow and Durace overhauls, and you paid a lot more for those. Um, but, you know, for some time, I know that Durace has used grade 20 balls. Now, to put this in perspective, we're talking balls with a roundness or kind of an error rate of 0.000020. I mean, this is, this is crazy precision. Okay, Um, but now, you know, to give this even more perspective, Enduro's entry level offerings for steel balls are grade 10, twice as round as have traditionally been used in Durace. Um, But since this is going to be full rabbit hole, I'm just going to let Matt Harvey explain what they do at Enduro. So Enduro Bearings does uh, bearings for basically every variety needed in a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Given all the different bottom bracket standards and all the ones needed for suspension, I mean, how many SKUs are we talking roughly? I think we're close to a thousand now. Wow. It was 600 a few years ago, and with headset bearings now, <clears throat> and uh, more and more uh, uh, custom pivot bearings. Uh, it's it's approaching a thousand different SKUs now that we have. That's amazing. I'm curious now. I mean, when I first got into the bike industry, you know, as a shop rat, it was basically all cup and cone. Mm-hmm. I I think t- 
two years into my first shop stint, mm-hmm. I bought a pair of high E hubs. Mm-hmm. But it took a long time for the notion of uh, precision bearings to catch on in the bike industry. Mm-hmm. First, do you have some idea why that took so long? Um, it's interesting. The first bearings ever developed were cup and cone, and they were for bicycles, Aeolus bicycle hubs, like after the Civil War. And it's still a great design. The design that Campagnolo used, uh-huh. it still works great. We use it on the XT15 bottom brackets. Um, radial bearings are <clears throat> came about, or... They've existed for a long time, for a hundred years. They became popular, I should say, uh, more recently in the last 30 years because it's easier in production to use them because you just bore a hole into whatever component you're using or making and you press a bearing into it. Cup and cone, you have to, uh, it's a three-part system at least, and you need to have an adjustment system like a threaded axle or a threaded component Right. So there's a little more work involved in that at the factory. So if you're building these things at a factory, you either need robots or humans to assemble those and put them in, whereas you can just press a radial cartridge bearing in uh, much easier. And that that's why I think we've seen a lot more in the last 30 years of cartridge bearings. And it makes a lot of sense to me also from the standpoint of serviceability. Mm-hmm. You know, you could always mm-hmm. put fresh balls uh, into a cup and cone bearing, but once the race was done, mm-hmm. you know, the hub was done or the bottom right. bracket was done. Right. So much less expensive mm-hmm. to maintain. Right. And as we go more and more into this do-it-yourself society, everybody's working on their own bikes. It used to be everything went to a bike shop or sure a professional mechanic. But more and more, we sell tools to people at home. They're working on, they're building their own shop. They're working on their own bikes. And cartridge bearings are much easier to deal with. Uh, There's less training involved in how to install them, how to adjust them, everything. Cool. Now, let's talk about quality. Mm -hmm. Um, Give our listeners some sense of the sort of jump in quality that we've seen, you know, in hubs and bottom brackets, mm-hmm. particularly now that we are dealing with precision bearings as opposed to when we were all on cup and cone. Yeah, the biggest advancements have been in the materials. The steels are better, they're cleaner. Uh, we also have ceramics now, ceramic hybrids, um, and ceramic balls with the right steels there's steels that have been developed that work well with them and uh, so that's that's the big advancement and the big jump Um, and with really clean good materials good steels you can also make those parts more precise Mm -hmm. and they will uh, the bearings will spin uh, with less friction and and uh, with more ease than they would have uh, 30, 40 years ago with less work. So it's it's more every day that you get a really high quality bearing now than you would have. You could get really high quality bearings 40 years ago, but you had to pay a lot more for them. Sure, sure. Um, thinking on some of the bottom brackets that I've installed in the last few months, you know, I mean, my super record 
bottom bracket never spun like that. Yeah. Uh, I've heard any number of riders go, well, you know, they're using a better grease now. That's mm -hmm. a small part of it. But help explain, you know, what all has taken place so that you can now spin a bottom bracket and mm -hmm. it'll go, you know, a dozen, maybe two dozen revolutions before stopping. When, you know, back in 1984, you'd spin it and make it, you know, maybe one full revolution and then stop. Mm -hmm. Well, this gets back to angular contact bearings too, because when you have an angular contact bearing setup, you have two bearings opposed to each other and you preload the system, you adjust it, and all of the balls are engaged at once. So when you spin the crank, you every single ball is moving, which is nice because it disperses the load. Mm -hmm. And But as a result, there is a little more friction for that hand spin, so it's not gonna, uh, those, it's gonna slow down quicker. All of the balls are moving and there's more uh, surface contact from those balls because of the angular contact design. With a radial bearing, <clears throat> and most bottom brackets are radial bearing systems now, uh, there's play in those bearings, a slight amount of play. You don't really feel it. You try and push on your crank arm, you don't really feel it, but there's play in those bearings. So when you spin them, sometimes only, and there's no load on those bearings, mm -hmm. sometimes only maybe three, four balls per side are spinning or under load. The other ones are in the air, if you will, moving around in the bottom bracket. So with radial bearing setup, there is less friction. It, it, now, as soon as you load that thing, when you load the cranks, uh, most of the balls will be engaged. But uh, that's the difference, kind of angular contact compared to a radial setup. Okay. That, well, that certainly at least helps me understand it better. Now, to give people a, a sense of the sophistication of some of the materials you're working with, mm -hmm. talk a little bit about XD15. This stuff's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing material. So I had heard about it a number of years ago, and uh, I knew that a few people were making bearings out of it. They were using it for Airbus. What's amazing about this material is that it's, uh, it's what they call a super stainless material. And uh, it's extremely clean. Uh, and how they get it so clean is they make a really nice stainless steel and then they remelt it under pressure. Uh, and under pressure, they introduce nitrogen. And what the nitrogen does is make the material very homogenous, even. Uh, so the carbons are, are perfectly uh, uh, spread out in the material, if you will. So what does that do? Well, when the ball rolls over the steel, it, it want, the carbons want to um, migrate and make brittle areas that become like potholes. And those potholes break out, and then that's when you get a rough bearing. But in XD15, the ball can, a ceramic ball can continuously roll over the material, and uh, that will not happen. The carbons stay put, everything stays stable. And uh, the ball actually, it actually gets smoother over time. It's the opposite of what you think. So it's, you know, really ceramic, most ceramic hybrid bearings, the day you get them out of the box is the best day. And then it goes downhill from there. With XD15 ceramic bearings, uh, 
they actually get a little better over time. So a couple of years from now, your bottom bracket might spin even better. Even with dirt in there, doesn't matter anything. It, it's very tough material. So it's kind of a magic material. Wow. What does that do in terms of a price premium to a bottom bracket or, or bearings that you might put in a hub? Well, that's the, so with that, it comes <laughs> up, there is a price of entry. But uh, so it's going to be, uh, you know, bottom bracket is in the $200 range. A set of bearings for your wheels is going to be, um, you know, three to $400. So that is a lot of money. But if you ride a lot and you race and you ride in the rain, and let's say you uh, have to replace your bearings once every couple of years mm -hmm. or a year maybe for some people or bottom bracket bearings, uh, these will be in your bike five years, 10 years, they'll, they'll still be as, as good as the day you bought them and you don't, um, you know, you don't have to replace them and they'll be spinning great. So in the long run, if you used them for a long time, you might actually save money if you do a lot of maintenance. Right. No, that makes sense. Uh, it also makes sense that you would call the company Enduro. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to have you over. Again, that was Matt Harvey, CEO of Enduro Bearings in Oakland, California. Celine, okay, so I'll admit I didn't give bearing drag much thought until a fateful experience in 1990. I overhauled my bike and filled the Campagnolo hub shells with grease uh, with the idea that I'd just periodically inject more grease uh, through the New England spring and that would keep the bike running smoothly. How did that work? There was, well, there was a problem. <laughs> the very first ride I did on that bike, I got dropped because there was so much drag in the hubs from all the grease surrounding the bearings and axle. I couldn't do 20 miles per hour on that bike drafting other people. <laughs> wow. It, it was good. Uh, it was good resistance training, maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it did teach me a lesson. Um, the very next day, I I opened up the hubs and cleaned out. I mean, like I was sending pipe cleaners through the hub shell. I cleaned out all that grease, put them back together with a whole lot less grease. And oh, look, I can do 20 miles an hour now. That's <laughs> um, the, the question I want to put to you is, you know, Everyone's aware stuff rolls better now. Yes. Uh, bottom brackets spin in a way they didn't used to. You know, we can spin wheels and they'll go for, you know, minutes if they're in a stand. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, so we're aware it's better. But how much thought do you ever give to bearings? And if so, of what variety? Wow. Well, I'm going to step way back here, Patrick, <laughs> and completely confess that during this interview, my my head spun like an old school bearing. Like it went a little fast and then it got stuck and then it, it sort of sped up and maybe there was too much grease or not enough. And then it just seized for a while. And then I wrenched it back into place. So I, this, I am not technically, this is not my wheelhouse, so to speak. 
Um, sure. My sure. bike does magic; it rolls. Then I, when it doesn't, I take it to my mechanic, and he makes it roll again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, you know, and I know that the my experience with bearings it goes to blasting them with a power hose at a uh, race in West Virginia, and then it didn't roll at all the next day. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with all the things you can do wrong. I think one of the things that um, this really caught my ear on was the fact that they could roll and correct me if I misunderstood. It sounded as though through gross neglect, I could let them get dirtier and they would roll faster. Did I hear that right? Close. <laughs> Come I on. Mean, you know, part of it. <laughs> That's what I <laughs> Give want. You something to work with. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, depending on just what, you know, what bottom bracket you're working with and which materials, yeah, it is possible. He's working with some really incredible materials. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're uh, riding something with a ceramic bearing and that XD15 steel, um, it's just going to get better in time. Wow. We're still going to recommend that you put some fresh grease in there from time to time. I wouldn't wait, oh, five years. Um, <laughs> but, you know, once a year, squirt some fresh grease in. And it sounds like, yeah, that stuff's going to last maybe not a lifetime for, but as long as you'd ever want that bottom bracket. See, I holy think cow. as a Northeast rider, right, where we have weather and we have mud <laughs> and we have all that stuff yep. all the time. Because um, for a long time, when I first started riding, I'm like, does anybody ride where it rains? Like, I, because <laughs> stuff just seemed to be made to, to, right, to be ridden where there was no mud. And, yeah. you know, and a lot of stuff did come out of California and we'd get it here on the East Coast and we would destroy it like six ways to Sunday. We would destroy it. So I think like I love to hear people talk about rain and mud and, you know, less maintenance and all that kind of stuff, because it's it's real where I ride. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a real concern. Um, and I don't baby my stuff. Uh, if anyone who knows me knows that it's the complete opposite sometimes. But um, yeah, like when you have a mountain bike that you're supposed to get dirty and it's okay to get dirty and it's still going to run real well and you don't have to like, I mean, I think that's worth what it sounds like to be a pretty premium price for this technology, but it, it's totally worth it if you're out there, you know, riding in, in the elements and you know, getting your stuff pretty trashed. Yeah, I I think, you know, if I was going to try to suggest a, a, a real takeaway from the interview and from my visit there is that, you know, a lot of times people think that when you invest in better bearings uh, for, you know, say hubs or something, all you're going to get is something that's faster. Right. You know, you're going to get better momentum and you're going to go maybe a little faster based on your input. The bigger takeaway to me is that, you know, if you invest in better bearings and you do anything at all to take care of them, they're going to last a lot longer. Right. Fair. They're going to run smoother. And so, you know, sure, it's nice to go fast. I like going fast. Um, but the better bearings are actually going to ease uh, maintenance of your bike. Which is awesome. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's great for all of us, because I think sometimes technology does the opposite to us, right? Like sometimes when you get advanced technology, it means more maintenance to keep that thing running the way Software it should. Software upgrades? Or yeah. even on the bikes. I mean, pedals. I mean, there have been pedals that shall remain nameless that were really advances in technology, but they were, they had, they were so high maintenance 
You know, so you had to sort of draw that line. And I think that's the way with a lot of high-end stuff, even on your even on your outdoor equipment. So it's nice to see somebody with an eye and an ear to that needle, like keeping it, you know, like you're, it's, a, it's an advance and it's more, but it also means less maintenance. And that's like, those are great things to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fascinating stuff. He's got one bottom bracket, uh, for press fit bottom brackets where the bearings are in a shell that thread together. Mm-hmm. And so my understanding is that'll eliminate all the squeaks and I've got a bike Oh. that will periodically squeak in the bottom bracket. So <laughs> I can't wait to give a try to one of those. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Great stuff. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Well, let's move on to your poll. Hmm. My poll is this uh, decidedly different this week, Patrick. And, and you know, maybe it's a little bit uh, a little bit heavier than, than bearings, but I think, you know, it's a little timely and it's an important topic. So, you know, I, it's one I've been thinking about. And my poll this week is post-event depression. Or I, if you don't want to mm. use it, you know, some people don't like to use that word depression, but some people outright call it depression. Whatever you want to call it, it's the post-event lull, dip, low in mood that a lot of people get. Um, yep. and, it, and it settles in especially after a big bucket list event. Um, you know, I dropped a line to our good friend, Yuri Hoswald, uh, after his massive accomplishment of finishing um, second place, nonetheless, the Journey Kansas Extra Large, you know, 350 miles in those prairies, insane yeah. distance. Um, his training stress score, which I just saw yesterday, was 1,175, which is... Good grief. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know what that means. Like, I can't even, I don't even, I've never seen anything like that, right? Like, that's, it's not even off the charts. It's out of the stratosphere. Um, I didn't think you could produce a TSS with a comma in it. Right. (laughs) Great way to put that. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, I dropped him a line and he's usually, he's pretty quick with the phone, right? Like he's usually pretty quick to get back to you on text or respond. And it, and it like a week went by and I thought, okay, he's probably just really busy. Um, and I finally heard back to him a couple of days ago and, and he's like, Hey, you know, thank you. I just, you know, the event tapped me out emotionally and mentally in ways I haven't experienced. And if I'm going to be honest and I'm not speaking out of school because he has since tweeted about our exchange, um, it's left me in a bit of a depression, which has never happened before. And, uh, you know, I was like, yep. I said, I, you know, I, I, I totally, I've never done anything to that magnitude. And I've done a couple Ironman, you know, I've done very big things, multi-day, huge stage races. And I was like, you, you know, especially for something like that, which you spend so much time in preparation for like like he spent months training and preparing for this thing and digging into like your physical capacity and your emotional reserves and making all these sacrifices and then you go and do this enormous thing that literally like rings you out saps your energy stores drains your mental reserves and you know completely fries your central nervous system which is keeping all those things in play and you, you know, then you finish the event and you get the, you are an Iron Man, or you just finished this amazing thing and you've got this giant adrenaline elation of the finish. But then what, right? Like when the cheers die down and you're completely exhausted and then you're home staring listlessly 
at all the crap in your garage and the piles of laundry and the work you've left behind. And you're just like, what was it all about? You know, what was what what did that mean? Um, you know, the letdown can be enormous. And I, yeah. in my training and in my coaching, I've seen a lot of people try to fill that gap immediately by like signing up for the next big thing, which is like why I think when you go to your car, you see little flyers for the next big thing in your windshield, because everybody knows that you're still riding that high, right? And you're more likely to sign up for something. Um, but trying to ride that wave, I think, or more accurately, not allowing yourself to experience the low tide isn't healthy for any of that and maybe sets you up for even worse lows long term. You know, personally, I've always thought it best to ride out that depression and maybe even appreciate it for, for what it is, which in, in my mind has always been sort of an emptying out of self, you know, an emptying out of, of all of yourself in so many ways. And then give yourself time to like allow those reservoirs to refill naturally, which they ultimately mm-hmm. do, but it just, you know, it can take a while. And, you know, just one more note on that that I that I left him with and that I've been thinking about is that um, I think it's also important that people who do these events, like a lot of people who have gone out to Kansas multiple times or are preparing for their umpteenth Leadville or whatever it is, you know, many of us are drawn to these endurance events because they they do take us to those limits and that we you know they challenge us in ways that we're that we crave, but a lot of the same personal qualities that give endurance oriented folks like ourselves, the strength to do these feats also leave us very vulnerable when they're done. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, speaking a hundred percent for myself here, I'm drawn to them as a way to quiet my mind and silence a lot of internal demons, you know, like all the tortured internal voices and the mental noise that is just part of who I am and is louder when I am in stillness. You know, so as I was telling a friend of mine this week, you know, those voices are most silent when I'm in motion and I'm goal oriented. So big endurance events make a lot of sense for me. And I'm very happy and I'm very productive and I'm energetic when I'm training because all those the voices are quiet. I'm able to think I'm able to work. And I'm also like getting my, you know, adrenaline and my endorphins on with all my activity. Like it's just a great sweet spot to be in. But when those things are done and I'm all emptied out and tired and adrift and anchorless and now unable to escape those demons because I'm so tired, um, things can get really dark inside my head, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, and as mm-hmm. I've told Yuri, I've personally gone through these dark patches by accepting it as part of the process and by trying to be a little more process oriented in general, which is hard. I'm, I am goal oriented. But then I feed that a little bit by giving myself the goal, if you'll follow me, of regeneration, of like making, mm-hmm. making re- refilling those reservoirs actually a goal of mine, which means taking whatever time it takes, one, two, three, four weeks to do fun bike rides with friends, spend extra time with my family, you know, just not put any expectation or pressure on anything I do, you know, and just like make up lost time at work, whatever it is, um, you know, and I just think that it's also very important. I'm so glad that Yuri talked about it because I think it's important that we do talk about it and that we let this stuff out because yeah. far too often, and I'm very guilty of this myself, I think all too often people just see the grit and the smiles and the arms up at the end of the day and the good stuff on Instagram and they don't see those inevitable lows. You know, when I'm sitting and we're just 
faced with all those quiet, undocumented low moments when we're done. And I think it's important to acknowledge those just as much as we acknowledge all the other stuff. Um, so that's my yeah. pull. Sorry if it was a little bit of a heavy pull, but I thought it was an important pull. And I'm sure that you have some, you must have some thoughts on this too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the easy part of the answer is yes. Um, it's funny. It took me a long time to begin to appreciate that that happens because, you know, you get to the end of a big event and you're wrung out physically and it's hard to separate how much of the emotional uh, fatigue you're feeling is just an extension of the physical fatigue. Mm-hmm. It's the physical fatigue is so much more powerful that it's easy to miss that you've got this whole additional thing that is um, r- related, but not the same. Right. And so, so often I would get uh, in my early days of racing, I'd get overtrained and, you know, or I'd, I'd, you know, get to the end of a, of a really hard event, say a stage race, and I'd have this letdown. And for years and years and years, I just confused it with fatigue. I didn't understand that there was a separate emotional component to it. And, um, you know, as I've shared for all the cycling world, um, I'm emerging from a recent bout of uh, depression and uh, admitting that for everyone was not a whole lot of fun, but uh, I think it's helpful to talk about and be honest about this stuff. Um, as a result, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with a counselor to make sure that I'm recognizing, not just that I'm in touch with my emotions, but I'm recognizing specific feelings as they occur to me. Uh, I'm someone who went through, uh, a great many years, not understanding what a panic attack was (laughs) and really only in the last year was able with the help of a counselor to go, Oh, that thing that you experienced there, that was a panic attack. And so, Uh, not that panic attacks are necessarily related to this, but just making sure that you're in touch with the, the things that you're feeling, uh, in the wake of a big event. I think that's the first biggest thing I noticed for me when I finished, uh, the King Ridge, uh, dirt Supreme hopper, uh, last month, I, yeah, I was done. I mean, I had done all six of the events and, they had been, uh, a, you know, relative to my fitness, uh, a really big challenge this year. I, I can't say I was entirely up to the challenge, but I persisted. Um, on the drive home, I cried. Hmm. And, you know, it was one of those things that I realized was a, a big part of what that experience was. And I flipping hated li- writing those lines. I hated admitting that. But if my job as a writer is to be honest, I needed to share that. And it was, you know, once I got home and I was thinking about it, it's like, well, okay, why am I crying? What's this about? You know, part of it is I've adored these experiences and, you know, I got more out of these experiences than anybody else because I'm out on the course longer than anybody else. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, But, you know, knowing that, oh, I don't get to do these events 
for another seven, eight months. You know, it's going to be ages before I get to do one of these events. And I adore them. So I'm going to be missing what has become a really key part of my social life mm-hmm. here in Sonoma County, uh, even though there are only six of them a year. You know, I just, I live for these things. I don't care how unfit I am. I'm not, you know, it's one thing if I'm sick in bed. Sure, I won't show up then. But, you know, if I'm fit enough to ride my bike, I'm there. Um, and so it's a big deal for me. And so I was, I was needing to get square with that sense of loss and, you know, what it meant to be fatigued, but also, also, you know, emotionally wrung out and, um, uh, trying to make peace with the idea of, you know, okay, you need to go on, go easy on yourself for the next couple of weeks. Um, and it's nice to be in a place where, I can listen to my body, I can listen to my mind, and I can adapt accordingly. It's a it's a very healthy change for me. And I'm really glad you brought this up, even though, yeah, I'm, even now I'm uncomfortable talking about it. it. Yeah, I mean, these things are uncomfortable because they're not, they're not happy things to talk about, right? But I think, um, but I think the more that we do just talk about them and, and make them not you know, obviously not shameful, but also like a little less uncomfortable even. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just think the better off everybody is because we're, we're, this this life is filled with all, a lot of ups and downs, right? And a lot of, and we all go through them in our own capacity. And I think, um, yeah, it's just good to be able to, to talk so we can uh, normalize it and also keep each other afloat. Just, you know, I, I think that if everybody recognizes it as part of something that just happens, then we can check in with each other and we can just make sure that, you know, everyone's doing okay and just help somebody who is in that place just know that it's not permanent, you know, and it's just something that, that this too shall pass. So, yeah. 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 I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, talking about, uh, uh, emotional lows and depression is like putting light and bleach on mold. It's the only way we're ever going to get on top of it, yep. you know? And, uh, yeah, part of, part of why I remain uncomfortable is knowing that in our society, there is still a, a stigma attached. Um, but I'm aware that the only way we're going to combat it is by being honest. And so and once in, more to the breach. And in the endurance community, please. The, uh, we're all out there fighting some demons, every single one of us. So let's just help each other slay them, I think. Please and thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Okay. Well, uh, brighter topics. <laughs> yes, uh, let's what's your, <laughs> let's that what's your baseline pick this I, week? Completely different off topic, but um, it's something that I used this weekend to brighten my mood. Let, let me just say, I was, okay. I was on a... Um, very fun, just very hard. The uh, That unpaved ride that I've been talking about that is coming up yep. October 14th, where we were out reconning some of the uh, the big climbs. And it was, we have had summer in its full effect here, Patrick. You were mentioning your summer. Well, we're in the 100 degree, well, not quite, but in the 90s with 100% humidity, right? Uh, so we were out there doing a, a pretty big day, 70, 80 miles with a lot of long dirt climbs and I had fueled pretty well, but I was getting at that point where I just, another sugary thing was just, I was going to kill somebody if I had to eat another sugary thing, right? I just could not bear it. Um, And I remembered that I had packed, which are new to me, these uh, packets of F-bomb nut butter. 
and that F stands for <laughs> stands for fat. But when you're saying F bombs, maybe you need some. Um, they they come in like a gel packet, like a energy gel kind of packet. But it's actually filled with macadamia nut butter that is flavored uh, with sea salt or chocolate or coconut. I, you know, they're they're they are delicious. But they are it's it is just creamy macadamia nut butter with all these flavors and yeah. salt. And it is I suck that thing. I was like, this is amazing because, you know, we are burning a lot of fat when we're out there, too, because you're not just burning carbs and sugar. You're doing an endurance event. And right. at some point, you just need to top off there a little bit, too, and just find something to give you a little satiety and put something back into your system that isn't just quick burning sugar. Uh, they have about 200 calories each. And it was it brought me back from the dead. It was it was great. And it was exactly what I needed. I would have had, I think, four of them, which might have not been the right answer. But if I had them, I would have taken them. Um, but it was, yeah, it was great. Uh, I This is the first time I've been using them. And, you know, I think they're they're fantastic. So, yeah, F-Bomb Nut Butter runs a box of 10, runs about 25 bucks. And you can also use them, you know, I've used them like I would peanut butter. You know, put them on an apple, put them on a sandwich. But super good stuff. Neat. Where do you find them? Um, I would put... I would put the link on the site because I think you can just get them either through Amazon or by their website. I haven't seen them in the stores. Okay. All right. So order them. All yeah. right. Cool. So my pick is Shimano's S fire apparel. That's the S hyphen P H Y R E. Um, we've seen that on the shoes. This stuff is crazy. <laughs> you know, somebody mentioned Shimano. Most people, the first thing they think of are bike parts, right? Or mm -hmm. unless they're a fisherman, then it's fishing reels. But honestly, for the bike set, Shimano does a lot more than derailers. You know, they've done shoes for many years, but apparel is a relatively recent move. And their S-Fire apparel, I swear to God, this is the creme de la creme. I've been wearing a few of their pieces. Uh, they've got their version of a speed suit, and I've also got jersey and bibs. And this past winter, I was riding uh, some of the winter apparel. Um, the jersey that I've got is cut from a fabric that is a weave rather than a knit. So it's a, got a very smooth finish to it. Um, and somehow they've managed to get some elastane or something else in there. Yeah. Elastane so that it's got some stretch to it. Uh, you know, normally you think, uh, a weave, you're thinking chinos or wool slacks or a dress shirt, stuff that doesn't have any give to it, but this has enough give to it. And yet it's, uh, it's a very thin material because it's a weave. So it wicks really well. It, the quality on this is just off the charts. And then on top of that, um, it's got a completely seamless construction so that the jersey is really aerodynamic. Um, and then the quality of the fit is really good. You know, more and more as jersey manufacturers are going to a form-fitting fit, you know, there's stuff that, oh, this one's too short mm -hmm. or this one doesn't have enough room in the shoulders. And, you know, I may not be like every guy out there, but I think it's just adaptable enough in its fit that it's going to fit a lot of American bodies really well. Um, and then the bib shorts are cut from a mostly polyamid fabric that is the softest, smoothest finished I've I've ever felt in bib shorts. Um, 
it's, I mean, like I held my leg up to a buddy. I was like, feel this. And I was like, <laughs> what? Um, I was like, no, just feel the fabric, you know? Um, the chamois on these is also articulated. So there's a split in the rear half so that the bibs can move with you better instead of trying to move all of that pad at once as you pedal. I tell you, Celine, these are better than 95% of everything I've ever written. The stuff is so good, I would tell people to consider it before dropping the big bucks on Asos. Not that there's anything wrong with buying Asos, but the stuff is not as expensive. Um, you know, prices are going to vary some depending on who your dealer is, but it's much more affordable. And just, yeah, the quality is just off the charts. Wow. I'm really blown away with this stuff. Do they have women's too? Uh, maybe. Sorry. <laughs> what with being a guy, I haven't really looked into I it yet. I, I actually do. I should have prepared myself for that question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, for women who are willing to wear men's uh, bib shorts uh, or, you know, allegedly unisex, uh, I would, you know, if you're if you're not too hippie and tiny waisted, mm-hmm. I'd recommend trying the bib shorts. The jersey's certainly doubtful, right. um, but uh, the the bib shorts and then once once fall comes around again, uh, the bib tights, mm-hmm. uh, they're worth checking out. Cool. Yeah. It's really neat stuff. All righty. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of The Pace Line. What are you up to this weekend? More unpaved recon rides? Uh, not this weekend. This weekend is a bit of time at home. I'm... Last weekend of catching up with a bunch of work, I was out, as I mentioned last time, last weekend at that press launch for Juliana, where we rode a couple new bikes that I cannot talk about yet. So I'm going to be riding up (laughs) those and, uh, you know, just spending some time around the house before the holidays and everything gets crazy again. Yourself? Yeah. Uh, So there's a club I'm in and we're having a summer solstice party. So there will be a... Very fun mountain bike ride on Saturday, followed by what I'm going to call a reasonably Bacchanalian celebration on this hillside near the Sonoma Coast. Um, it's going to be a blowout. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'll admit it. Excellent. It's going to be fun. Excellent. Yeah, and it's a just a really fun bunch of people. Uh, and I'm going to get introduced to a couple of trails back in there that I still don't know. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. It's this whole network of, of trails that there are, there are very few signs. They have all these names. It's hard to tell what's going on until you're really an expert at it. And I'm still learning my way around. That sounds great. That sounds perfect. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for my other new podcast, The Pull. The show features artisans talking about their craft in one-on-one interviews. Think Terry Gross for the bike set. This week's guest is Kristen Ulmer, formerly the world's greatest female extreme skier, and these days, an expert on fear. Finally, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, thanks for listening to The Pace Line.